0: Episode 242 of the Read to Lead podcast is brought to you in part by cloud accounting software FreshBooks and by classical music streaming app Adagio. And now through the Read to Lead podcast, you can try both free for a limited time. Get access to FreshBooks cloud accounting software free for 30 days when you visit freshbooks.com slash read to lead and enter read to lead in the how did you hear about us?" section and try my new favorite music streaming app Adagio free for 14 days when you visit read to lead podcast.com slash classical.
1: What people often overlook, and this is a key insight about building habits, is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. You have to master the art of showing up before you can worry about optimizing and expanding and you know improving it from there.
0: Hi there. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast, the show dedicated to your personal and your professional growth. I'm your host, Jeff. And I believe that if you desire to achieve true success in your business and in your life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. My job is to help narrow this reading list and bring you the key insights and main ideas from today's most successful and inspiring authors. I've been recently called the chief insight officer, and I've decided to embrace that Wholeheartedly. In a moment, you and I are going to sit down with author James Clear. He's got a brand new book out, and it's called Atomic Habits An Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones. Tiny changes, remarkable results. I'll ask James to share his opinions about the fact that if it's results you want, then focus on systems over goals, what it means to habit stack your way to success, whether or not you're predisposed to developing good habits or bad ones, and plenty more. More of just the right stuff is exactly what I get when I use my new favorite music streaming app. It's called Adagio. And Adagio is tailored for the classical music fan. If that's you, boy, you're in for a treat. I'm often looking for music that fits a particular mood. Like when I want to be focused, classical music helps me really laser in and be super focused when I'm doing deep work. So Adagio's Mood Player helps me find just what I'm looking for. And Classical music on other streaming apps is is often just an afterthought. That's one of the things I love about Adagio so much is they focus on just classical music. Adagio's curated playlists provide the perfect starting point. I also love that you can search by composer or orchestra or conductor or favorite instrument, you name it. It's easy to find using the Adagio app. You can try it free for 14 days as a listener to Read to Lead and then pay just $9.99 a month when you subscribe. You can check it out free right now at readtoleadpodcast.com slash classical. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash classical. And if you've been listening to Read to Lead for any length of time, you know that FreshBooks cloud accounting software has been a supporter for a couple of years now. They help offset the cost of doing a show like this one and for that I'm very, very grateful. If you've yet to check out FreshBooks cloud accounting software, even if you're just working on a side hustle or you're doing some freelance work, you need a way to invoice your clients. In fact, when I first started using FreshBooks it's when I was doing some voiceover work back in radio for some other radio stations and I needed to have a way to invoice those stations for the voice work that I was doing. That was my entry into FreshBooks and now I use it all the time. And I can tell you with tax season just around the corner, I'm going to be very, very glad to have FreshBooks in my corner. And I don't want you to miss out any longer. You can try it free for 30 days when you go to freshbooks.com slash read to lead. When you get there, be sure to put read to lead in the how did you hear about us section. Try out all the features that FreshBooks has to offer. No obligation, no credit card needed to sign up or anything like that. Again, it's freshbooks.com slash read to lead. James Clear is an author and speaker focused on habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement. And his work has appeared in the New York Times, and Entrepreneur, and on CBS this morning. His website, jamesclear.com, receives millions of visitors every month, and nearly half a million people subscribe to his email newsletter. In fact, it may be more than that now that his book has come out. Uh, he's a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work is used by teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball. And through his online course, the Habits Academy, he's taught more than 10,000 leaders. His brand new book is called Atomic Habits, in an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. Tiny changes, remarkable results. Uh, James, I'm excited to have you here. Welcome officially to Read to Lead.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to talk with you.
0: Well, I have a couple of things I want to say before I officially ask my first question. And and, and thing number one is the My Story section of James' book alone is worth the price of admission. I'm not going to give anything away, but I learned a lot of things about James I did not know. (laughs) Very compelling story. Uh, And thing number two is I wanted to congratulate you on hitting the New York Times bestsellers list last week at, I believe, number five.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It's been a, a crazy month. I'm so pleased that people are enjoying the book and um, a real like exciting moment for me too to get that call and hear that I was on the bestsellers list.
0: Something that grabbed my attention early on in the book, James, was the idea that if you want to achieve better results, then you've got to forget about, uh, or don't have to, but you should think about forgetting about setting goals. And I was like, what? <laughs> Focus on the, the systems instead. You say, can can you unpack that, for?" just a little bit.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, uh, I should just say this is coming from someone who has for many years set all kinds of goals. So, Mm. you know, I would set goals for the weight I wanted to lift in the gym, for how much money I wanted my business to make, for the grades I wanted to get in school, all kinds of stuff. Mm. And at some point I realized, well, some of these goals I'm achieving, but a lot of them I'm not. So what's going on here? And clearly setting the goal was not the thing that determined whether or not I was making progress. And this is something you see in a lot of the you know the winners and losers so to speak in a particular domain a lot of the time they have the same goals right like every candidate who applies for a job has the goal of getting the job (laughs) every Olympian who competes in the Olympics has the goal of winning the gold medal so if the winners and the losers have the same goal then the goals cannot be the thing that makes the difference in their performance now it still might be necessary but it's not sufficient for success And I think that that's how I feel about goals. It's not that they're totally useless. Uh, I think what goals are useful for is setting a sense of direction for developing clarity around what you're going to focus on and where you'll focus your attention. But that's actually a fairly quick process. You know, like pretty much any of us can sit down and do like a goal setting exercise for 10 minutes and come up with some very ambitious goals. But we end up spending a lot of our time thinking about these results and outcomes and goals and milestones that we want to hit. And my argument is that it would be much better if we inverted that and spent a little bit of time thinking about goals, getting some clarity, figuring out what direction you want to move in. But pretty quickly after that, essentially putting your goal on the shelf and focusing almost exclusively on the system and the process behind the goal. And this becomes like fairly clear as soon as you think about how you actually get sustained results in life. For example, let's say that you have like a messy room or a dirty garage or something and you set a goal to clean that room. Well, if you get really motivated and you spend two or three hours cleaning, then maybe you'll end up with a clean room, Mm -hmm. but it's only clean for now. And this is one of the lessons behind goals and achievement and process and success. And I think one of the key reasons why habits are so crucial which is that we think the results need to change, but the results are not the thing that needs to change. You don't need a clean room, because if you don't change the sloppy, messy, pack rat habits that led to a dirty room in the first place, getting motivated and cleaning it now is only gonna solve your problem for the moment. Mm -hmm. What you really need to change are the habits behind a messy room. And this is true for pretty much any area of life. What you really need to change are not the results, but the habits behind those results. And that's ultimately the reason why I think it's important to focus on systems rather than goals.
0: My eyes were really open to this, James, and you said this a moment ago. You say it in the book, and it sounds obvious when you hear it, but I would never quite thought about it this way. It's the whole idea that winners and losers set the same goals. and I was like, aha, he's right. I had never thought about it like that. Well, we'll talk about the beliefs that drive our actions and the importance of understanding the power of identity change and what that means exactly.
1: Well, so this is kind of one of my central philosophies that, that ultimately true behavior change is really identity change. And what I mean is it's like a shift in how you see yourself. Because if you think about it, once you adopt a particular identity, and this can be positive or negative, by the way, you know, like a negative identity could be I'm bad at math or I'm bad at directions or I'm terrible at remembering people's names or uh, I have a sweet tooth (laughs) or a positive identity could be something like I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts or I write every day or something like that. And once you adopt a particular belief, you're not even really pursuing behavior change anymore because you're just acting in alignment with the type of the person that you already believe you are. And so that is, I think, is the true signal that change has occurred is that it feels normal to you now and there's no deeper way to achieve that than with identity change so now the question becomes well that's fine uh you know like it'd be nice to develop self-confidence or to view myself in a new light or to you know reshape my identity in a more positive and constructive way Mm. but how do i actually do that and this again comes back to habits and why i think it's such a central point why i talk about it in chapter two of the book is that your habits are how you embody a particular identity Now, I don't mean that habits are the only thing that influence your identity, but all experiences in life influence it in some way. And because habits are repeated, day in and day out, again and again, they end up forming the bulk of the evidence that shapes your identity. So for example, every morning that you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Every time you go to the gym, you embody the identity of someone who is fit. Every time you sit down and write one sentence, you embody the identity of someone who is a writer. And so in this way, these habits, these actions are kind of like, it's almost like every action you take is a vote for the type of person you want to become. Mm-hmm. And so the more that you cast these votes, you sort of accumulate this little body of evidence that reinforces, hey, this is the kind of person I am. You know, like you, you sit down and play guitar for 30 minutes and you do this 12 out of the last 14 days, and now you've got like 12 little votes that are saying, hey, maybe I'm the type of person that plays guitar every day. And no single instance will transform your belief, will shift your identity the way that you look at yourself. But as those votes build up and that evidence accumulates, it's kind of like each one adds like this grain of sand to the scale and eventually the scale starts to tip in favor of that belief ultimately i think that this is one maybe maybe even the core reason why habits are so important you know it's true that habits can deliver external results they can help you be more productive or lose weight or uh, reduce stress or make more money and all of that stuff is great but the real ultimate reason that habits matter so much is that they shape your sense of belief about yourself the things that you do repeatedly start to inform the mental image that you have of who you are and what's important to you and what kind of person you are and so that i think is the real reason that habits wield such power over our lives is that not only do they drive our results, they also drive our internal beliefs about ourselves.
0: I love what you bring to the table in regard to this topic. I mean, someone in your shoes could look at like a Charles Duhigg and the power of habits and go, well, everything that's that already needs to be said about this topic has been said. But I, I was listening to you read the book to me yesterday, uh, by the way, and I feel like I'm kind of reliving that right now having this conversation. But I, I feel like you bring so much to the table that, that I've never thought about or, or heard about before. Did you struggle at all with that as you were writing the book uh, as to whether or not you you were going to be able to say something new? Because I feel like you, you've accomplished that.
1: Oh. The- Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm really glad to hear you say that and hear other readers say that as well. I agree. I mean, you know, like there's been a lot that's been said. Obviously, Duhigg's book was great. There were a lot of other habit books that were written Mm -hmm. before him. So on the one hand, habits are a timeless topic. People are always going to be interested in them. But on the other hand, you know, I read those books, Mm -hmm. uh, his and many others, and I still had like a variety of questions that I didn't feel like were being answered. And, And this is not to criticize their books at all. I think they're probably whoever the Next wave of habit writers are whether it's a year from now or 20 years from now. We'll look at Atomic Habits and hopefully be able to probe around that and try to figure out like where the gaps are there, and that that's just kind of natural and how human knowledge advances. Mm -hmm. But the more that I read about the topics and the more I investigated them, I started to wrestle with some of these questions, and then I started looking in other areas. You know, like I I like to refer to myself as idea agnostic, and what I mean is that I don't care where an idea comes from, whether it's biology or neuroscience or philosophy. Philosophy or psychology, as long as it's accurate and relevant and helpful, I'm I'm totally up for it. And so I started looking at habits from these other angles, things that, that I think other people hadn't written about or looked at before. You know, what do, what do habits look like if I put on like my neuroscience lens? And what do they look like if I put on my philosophy lens? And what do they look like if I look at it totally just from an anatomical perspective? You know, like what's, what's going on in the body and the brain? So I would sort of kind of put on like these different colored glasses and just look at the topic from all these variety of angles and every now and then I come across like a new insider, a thought. And the whole time I'm always, and this is true for all my writing, I want to link it back to what is practical, what is actionable, what can be used in daily life. Mm. And I felt like that was a big gap that was uh, that was in the habits literature. There was a lot of discussion about what a habit was and how it worked and maybe even like why they were important. But there wasn't very much discussion on how do we translate that into something we can apply in daily life mm. and work. And uh, that's really one of the core purposes of Atomic Habits to kind of give people a manual or a guide for applying those ideas in, in, uh, in their lives.
0: I was meeting with my, my mastermind group this morning, and we were discussing the times that we each wake up and morning habits. And I felt like the smart uh, person in the room, the smartest one in the room, when I was able to uh, enlighten them uh, on the topic of habit stacking, uh, having, having read your book. C- can you share a bit about that concept, what that means exactly?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm glad you you found it useful. Um, So habit stacking is uh, a simple idea. I first heard of it from BJ Fogg. He's this uh, professor at Stanford, and uh, he refers to it as like this tiny habits recipe. But the way that I I describe it, essentially, it's just a formula for stacking a new habit on top of an old one. For example, you just look at your day and think about all of the things that you do each day. Uh, Say you wake up and you make a cup of coffee every morning. So you walk down to the kitchen you say the habit stack is going to be absolutely After I make my morning cup of coffee, I will meditate for 60 seconds or whatever the habit is that you're looking to build. And so you essentially find a way to tie your new habit to your old one. Mm. And this is useful for a couple reasons. First, it makes it very specific and precise when you're gonna do a new habit. And in fact, that's also a lesson about building a good habit stack, which is the more specific the stack is, or the more precise the trigger is, the more likely you are to remember the new one. So for example, there was a period of time where I, Had a habit where I said, okay, whenever I take a break for lunch, I will do 10 pushups. And that sounded fine at first, but it actually is a little bit vague. It's like, well, you know, when am I, am I doing that at the beginning of lunch or after I've eaten? Am I going to do it in my office or like somewhere else? And so what I changed it to was when I close my laptop for lunch, I will do 10 pushups. And so it became very clear when that action was supposed to occur. And uh, so that helps a lot. The second thing that habit stacking does that I think is kind of useful is that it naturally nudges you towards tying relevant habits together. So, for example, there was actually a study done on this. It was kind of interesting. They were teaching people how to build a flossing habit, and they asked one group to floss after they take a shower. So if you wanted to create a habit stack, it would be like, after I take a shower, I will floss my teeth. And then, you know, you go on with the rest of your, your like, uh, hygiene routine. But then the second group, they said, uh, we would like you to floss after you brush your teeth. And so it's, you know, after I brush my teeth, put the toothbrush down, pick floss up, floss my teeth and what they found was the group that did it after brushing their teeth was more likely to be successful than the group that did it after taking a shower. And all of those behaviors happen in the bathroom, but toothbrushing and flossing are so relevant, so close to each other, that it becomes easier to remember the thing to do. And this I think is a good thing to keep in mind when you're creating habit stacks in other areas of life is how can you chain together relevant behaviors so that you're using your current habits to remind you to do the new thing, but you're doing it in a place or a context that's very relevant to that new habit that you're looking to build?
0: Mm. Uh, this gets into one of the, the four laws that, that James talks about this one being make it obvious. Uh, the second law, make it attractive. I, is it even possible to, to make a habit irresistible?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So, just to, to bring people up to speed here, in the book, I cover these four laws. Laws of behavior change. And we just mentioned one of them this idea of making your habits obvious and make it attractive. The second one is really about the prediction that your brain makes before you take an action. So it's about like how desirable or how attractive a particular option or behavior is to you. And the more desirable it is, the more you experience a craving to do it. So in the case of bad habits, which are in many cases very desirable, we actually experience a craving. You know, mm-hmm. like a smoker may see a pack of cigarettes and they feel this craving, this urge to smoke. Or I may walk into the kitchen and see a plate of cookies and start to crave uh, eating one of them. And so the question that I had was, all right, well, can we kind of like flip this process on its head and feel that way about good habits? You know, like when do you feel compelled to do a good habit. How can you make a good habit as attractive as possible in the sense that it literally like attracts you or pulls you in. And there are a variety of methods for doing this. I talk about uh, quite a few of them in the book. But I think one of the most essential ones is social reinforcement or what I would call the influence of like your tribe on your behavior. And this is true not just for what makes habits attractive, but also for what gets them to sustain themselves. In other words, what makes them repeatedly attractive, what makes us come back to them again and again. If you just think about some of the common habits that we have in daily life, like you walk onto an elevator and you turn around to face the front or you have a job interview and you wear a suit and a tie or a dress or something nice. And there's no reason that you have to do those things, right? Like if you wanted, you could face the back of the elevator or you could wear (laughs) a bathing suit to a job interview like you don't have to do that stuff, but we, we choose to do it. We're attracted to those type of behaviors, to those types of habits, because doing that helps us fit in with the tribe. It matches the shared expectation of that group, right? Like you go to a job interview and everybody that's in the room has this expectation of how that interaction is going to occur. You're going to act professionally. You're not going to curse. You're going to wear like fairly nice clothes You're gonna present yourself in a professional manner. And there's no, again, there's no reason you have to do any of that. But the expectation is that you act that way because of what that particular tribe, what those social norms are. And so extending this to all habits, we are all part of multiple tribes. Some of those are large, like what it means to be American or French or uh, Buddhist or Muslim or Christian or whatever. Um, Some of those are small, like what it means to be a neighbor on your street or a member of your local gym, or a volunteer at the local elementary school or whatever. But all of those tribes, large and small, have a set of shared expectations, you know? And so if habits align with the shared expectations of the tribe, if they help you fit in and belong to the group, then they're very attractive. Um, We want to do them. And if habits conflict with the shared expectations of the group, they're very unattractive and we want to avoid them. And ultimately, this comes down to the fact that we are just all wired to belong. We're wired to want to to fit in, to have friends, to belong, to not be cast out. And because of that deep primal urge to, to belong, we don't want to go against the grain of the group. So the punchline here, and I cover this more in, uh, in the chapter in the book on social norms and, uh, and habits, the punchline is that you wanna join a group where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. Because if it's normal in that group, then it's going to be easy for you to stick to it. Uh, whereas if it goes against the grain of the group, it's going to be very challenging. Uh,
0: James, a uh, third law is about making it easy. And I know that's music to my ears and, and music to the ears of a lot of people. You know, I struggle uh, with procrastination occasionally. What What's some advice you would give for someone who truly, honestly, uh, sincerely wants to install better habits and rid themselves of the bad ones, but they just have procrastination issues? What advice would you give there?
1: Well, ultimately, the third law is about making your habits as convenient as possible Mm. and so one of the first places i recommend people start is with what i call the two minute rule and the basic idea is you take whatever habit you're looking to build and you scale it down to just the first two minutes so read 30 books a year becomes read one page or write my first book becomes write one sentence or do yoga four days a week becomes take out your yoga mat but the idea is that you're scaling it down to just the first two minutes. You make it as easy as possible. Mm. And then the habit that you're looking to build is actually the habit of taking out your yoga mat or writing that sentence or reading that page. And anything else that happens is just a bonus. <laughs> now, this sounds a little bit funny to people at first because they're like, well, you know, like taking out my yoga mat's not going to get me in shape. You know, like, why would I bother with that? But yep. What people often overlook, and this is a key insight about building habits, is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. You have to master the art of showing up before you can worry about optimizing and expanding and you know improving it from there. So if you can become the type of person who takes out their yoga mat four days a week or who reads one page every night, then you have a chance of being the type of person who does yoga four days a week or who reads 30 books a year and so on. And so it's really about figuring out how to master the art of showing up. And once you can do that, then you can optimize and improve from there.
0: Mm. Uh, for years, up until about a year ago, I had someone in my life who I considered my accountability partner. Uh, that changed about a year ago because of his uh, schedule changing uh, dramatically, uh, and that was that was huge for me. Uh, what are some ways, James, you've seen an accountability partner can come in and, and help make setting these habits more satisfying, as you as you put it in the book?
1: Right. Good question. So, uh, in a sense, this kind of there, there are kind of two answers I'll give here. The first one is it comes back a little bit to what we just mentioned a few minutes ago about the power of social reinforcement. Mm -hmm. Not only do the tribes and the groups that we're part of make habits attractive, but they also can make habits satisfying if you get praised for doing the right thing, you know, like on teams, for example you your role may be to do a particular thing during a play and your coach or your teammates might praise you for uh, sticking to your role for doing the right thing in that group and then of course there are many many examples right when students do the right thing in school that tribe praises them or their teachers praise them Mm -hmm. for certain things and so on um so there are many examples of this in, in daily life but the point is it can be very rewarding to do the thing that your tribe uh praises you for so in a sense, we get a little bit of accountability from the group as a whole. Now, in many cases, having a specific accountability partner, like the one that you just mentioned, can also be really effective for changing your habits and uh, and building new routines. And the most formal way that I've seen this done, which was it was a surprise to me when I first came across it. It seemed a little like overkill, but uh, it's called a habit contract. And the idea is you actually write up a contract that will say what habit you're gonna perform, how frequently you're gonna do it, and what the punishment or consequence would be if you don't follow through. And then at the bottom of the contract, you sign it and your accountability partner signs it. And again, I know it sounds like overly formal and maybe a little bit much, But the people that I've talked to who have actually done this, and I share one of their stories in the book, swear that it makes them more accountable Mm -hmm. and specifically the action of signing it. Uh, So, you know, one guy that I mentioned in the book, he um, Brian Harris, he he used this contract to lose weight and get in shape. He wrote down what his workout routine was going to be, what you know, how he was going to measure his progress, what the consequences would be. I think he was going to pay, you know, like if he didn't weigh himself each day, he would pay his personal trainer one hundred dollars or his wife would get five hundred dollars. Suspend, spend however she wanted or something like that. And the point here is to make the punishments extreme, to make the consequences extreme so that it seems like, okay, you know, I'm going to pay my trainer a hundred bucks if I can't step on the scale. Like that seems ridiculous. <laughs> and then... He would, uh, and then he would sign it and he had his wife sign it and his personal trainer sign it and it ended up working. Three months later, he hit the, the targets he was looking for. He made another one for the next quarter and hit those targets and then did it for another time. So the point here is that by making it very explicit and precise and everybody's getting on board, there really are two consequences that occur. The first is if you don't follow through, then you're not following your habit. And now you would know that either way. But the second thing is now you're not, not only are you not upholding your promises to yourself, Now you're not upholding your promises to someone else. Mm. And that's really the value of an accountability partner is that because we care about what the opinions of others are, because we care about the opinion of our spouse or our friend or the people in our mastermind group, we don't want to let them down. We don't want to be judged in the eyes of others. And something very formal, like an accountability or a habit contract, makes that very explicit and increases the likelihood that you'll follow through.
0: This isn't for everybody, but I have a friend who uh, has had success with writing a big check to a cause he hates and then putting that check (laughs) in a self-addressed stamped envelope and giving it to a friend. If I don't do X by this time, then you put that in the mail. Works for him.
1: Yeah, there are a couple services online that allow you to do that. Uh, One is called Beeminder. There's another one called Stick. I think it's S-T-I-C-K-K. You do the same thing. You place a bet of some size that will go to a charity you hate if you (laughs) through. And uh, your friend is actually the one in charge of the money. Once you mm. put the money down, you can't get it back unless the friend releases it to you. Mm. And so it takes a little bit of the power out of your hands mm. from, you know, cheating the, the system.
0: Well, James, what, what role do, do genes play in all this? Am I predisposed to being good at building habits or not?
1: Mm. I think that, first of all, there's just a lot for us to still learn here. Mm. Uh, I really, I'm really excited about this particular area of habits, behavior, and just kind of understanding human nature but I think we're in the early days. However, I still wrote a chapter on it because I haven't seen anybody cover it before. And I think that it's a huge area of opportunity. So the way that I think about it is like this. A lot of the time we don't like talking about genes because naturally people think, oh, my genes are fixed. And if they're fixed, there's nothing I can do about it. So why bother trying? I guess like everything is just predetermined, but that's actually not true at all. And if you look at what makes genes useful, it's also what hinders them. So what I mean is That It's impossible to have genes that are not in an environment, that are not in a context. And it's actually the combination of your genes and your environment that determine how useful that set of genetic predispositions is. So for example, if you're seven feet tall, then being on a basketball court is a really useful environment to be in, or said better, having a jeans that make you seven feet tall is very useful if you're playing basketball. However, if you want to do like a gymnastics routine, then having genes that make you seven feet tall is not very helpful on a balance beam, Hmm. right? Now, this is very clear to us when we talk about physical characteristics, but it's also true of psychological characteristics. Every psychological characteristic you have has some type of genetic underpinning. And in fact, the most robust research on psychology traits thus far is what's called the big five. And it basically maps your personality onto five different spectrums. Hmm. So the most common one that people are familiar with is introversion on one side and extroversion on the other. But there are a variety of other ones like agreeableness, which is kind of like the spectrum of how warm and kind and considerate you are or conscientiousness, which is the spectrum of how like orderly uh, you are, for example. And there are a variety of details to each one. But roughly speaking, you kind of have these five spectrums and uh, DNA, your genes, has been linked to each of those five. Now, the question that I had was, all right, if we have a deeper understanding of what your genetic makeup is, then is it possible that you're maybe predisposed to being better at some habits than others the same way that a seven footer is predisposed to being better at basketball than at gymnastics and I don't know the exact the answer exactly but I think it's likely so for example if someone's high on that agreeableness spectrum that we just mentioned you can imagine someone who is warm and kind and considerate it might be easier for them to get in the habit of writing thank you notes or into the habit of like they're the one in the friend group who always gets people together to you know go out uh, on the weekend or to have people over for a house party or something like that and similarly and I think maybe even more useful, more important, is the idea that if you understand your genetic makeup well, if you understand your personality well, it might inform what strategies you should take for building habits. So, for example, imagine if someone is low on the conscientiousness spectrum. If they're and so, this is the one that maps how orderly you are. So, if you're not, if you're not the type of person that's very orderly, then it might be increasingly important for you to utilize some strategies like environment design which I cover that more in chapters 6 and 12, but it basically shows you like how do I structure my environment to make certain habits easier, or to make the cues of those habits more obvious and if you can do those things then you have less of a need to like just remember what to do or since you're low on conscientiousness you might not be the type of person who would make a to-do list for example or who would be able to stay on track and like you know track down what exactly is going on and so for a person like that being in an environment that primes them to do the right action might be a really big win since their personality isn't naturally going to do it for them whereas maybe for someone who's high in conscientiousness the environment environment maybe is less of a concern because they're going to remember to do it even if they aren't prompted by the physical environment. Mm -hmm. So the point here, and this is part of the punchline of that chapter, is that genes do not eliminate the need for strategy. Instead, they they inform your strategy. They tell you where to work hard. So genes do not say, oh, there's no need to work hard on things. It's all just predetermined. Instead, they show you like, it's kind of like a form of judo. It shows you more precisely where to apply the effort and attention Mm -hmm. so that you you can get the most powerful result. Well,
0: James, this has been fascinating. I have a a couple of questions I want to ask, not directly related to the book. But before I do that, uh, is there anything else from the book you want to make sure we we walk away with apart from uh, going out and buying it right now and keeping it on the New York Times bestseller list? (laughs)
1: Well, certainly, I hope people do that and will find it useful and interesting. Um, There are tons of things in the book that we weren't able to cover. I will add one final point, which is about the fourth law. So we talked a little bit about accountability partners and how those can be helpful. Mm -hmm. But the fourth law is about making it satisfying. And the reason it's important to make habits satisfying is that that's what gets a habit to stick in the long run. So essentially, you can think about pretty much any habit that you perform with regularity, good or bad, the reason you do it is because it serves you in some way. And typically it serves you in a very immediate fashion. So for example, you can think of pretty much every behavior as producing multiple outcomes across time. And for your bad habits, it's usually the immediate outcome that's favorable, right? Like uh, if you smoke a cigarette, it eases your stress right then, or it satisfies your nicotine craving in the moment. It's not until like years later that you have the negative consequence. Of lung cancer or reduced health or breathing problems and so on. Mm. With a good habit, it's often the reverse. Like the immediate outcome of going to the gym, for example, is that you sweat and it's effortful and it takes a little bit of a trade-off because you don't get to watch Netflix during that hour, or you know, it's like mostly (laughs) sacrifice up front. Mm. But then the long-term outcome, the ultimate outcome, is favorable. You're in shape, you're fit, you're healthy, and so on. And so a, a huge part of the battle of building good habits and breaking bad ones is about making it satisfying in the moment right away for your good habits so that you have like Mm -hmm. this positive emotional signal where it says, Hey, this felt good. You should do this again next time and making your bad habits, painful or unsatisfying in the moment so you have a reason to avoid them rather than having this like delayed outcome you know years later which most people are going to overlook so as a as just as a final little practical i talk about this a lot more in the book on how to like do both of those but as one way to make your good habits more satisfying in the moment it can come to shifting your focus a little bit. So I think that people who are good at delaying gratification, so for example, people who are good at showing up at the gym week in and week out, it doesn't really feel like sacrifice to them. I just described it as sacrifice, right? Like, oh, all the efforts up front, and you don't get the payoff for months or years later. But for people who are good at that, it doesn't usually feel like sacrifice to them. Instead, their attention is focused on a different area of the activity. You know, they're focused on like, oh, I enjoy going to the gym because I get to hang out with some of my friends, or I've been sitting at the desk all day and it feels good to move my body. Or, and this is another reason why it's important to pick forms of exercise that you really enjoy. Not everybody has to work out like a bodybuilder. You could go kayaking or hiking or uh, rock climbing or you know whatever, do yoga, all kinds of different things different things. So pick the form of exercise that makes you feel best in the moment because if it feels good in the moment, you'll want to return to it. And the the core idea here is just however you can find a way to feel satisfied at the time will increase the odds that you'll show up again the next time. Mm.
0: I don't like any form of exercise, but I've found that I'm less averse to running than, say, uh, weightlifting. So that's my primary way to stay in shape, and then I use an app called the Seven Minute Workout, and and that works great uh, for me. At least I'm at least I'm getting out there and and getting the heart rate up and. Keeping the weight in check. So it works.
1: Yeah, that's great. That's a good example. And it doesn't have to be, you know, I just offered one strategy there, but there are a few others that I cover as well. And essentially, if you layer them together, even for something that, hey, maybe I'm not the type of person who really loves exercise, you can make it satisfying enough that you still show up each day. James,
0: think about the books you've read over the years. I know that's many, so this may. The a tough question, asking you to pick uh, one of your favorites, but what would you say are maybe two or three that stand out to you as having had a big impact on you?
1: Yeah, I, I'll pick two. The book that I have given away the most is called Manual for Living by Epictetus. Mm. It's uh, it's really short. You can read it in like an hour or less. It's one of the stoic philosophers, just kind of like that outlook on life that we all need to be reminded of again and again. You know, it's not going to be anything you've never heard. It's things like focus on what is in your control, not what is out of your control and, and so on. But we need to be reminded of it. And so anyway, I like that one. And there's another short book that I thought was really interesting called The Lessons of History. And it was written by a husband wife couple. They were historians for like 60 years. And they spent almost their entire career creating this massive compendium of basically every major event in history. And it was this huge, like, encyclopedic 12 volumes or more. I mean, thousands of pages, millions of words on everything that had happened. And when they finished, they wrote a little 100-page book called The Lessons of History that was about the overarching themes that they learned from that 60 years of work. Mm -hmm. And what are the recurring things that happen throughout human history that, regardless of year or decade or even century, seem to be wired into human nature and come back again and again? And uh, as someone who is fascinated by habits and human behavior, I found it very interesting. And uh, I think it provides a little bit of a window into understanding why people do what they do. And even though modern society has changed so much, and there are all kinds of new things that drive and prompt our behavior, so much of those actions are just new manifestations of old desires and patterns. And you'll see that a little bit as you read the book. And uh, again, very short read. You can probably do it in an hour or two.
0: I know you do a, a fair amount of public speaking. I'd be curious to know, James, what you've learned over the years about being an effective public speaker and delivering a talk that's impactful and, and memorable.
1: Well, I think most of this is what I like hope or aspire to do rather than what I have done. But the really great talks that I've seen, the very best ones, again, hasn't usually been me on stage. It's been another speaker who I thought was amazing or something. It's all about eliciting an emotional response, Hmm. uh, making the audience feel something. A little bit of a cheat code to doing that is if you have music as part of your presentation. Mm. Uh, music automatically gets people's emotions flowing. And, uh, some of the most powerful talks that I've seen have been those that were speeches, but synced to music. Um, Mm. And so they basically play on the audience's emotions by having this music going in the background and the music dictates how you feel. If you pay attention the next time you watch a movie or a TV show, you'll see this happening to yourself. It's often like the dialogue in the scene. If you were to just cut the music in the background and only have the dialogue, you'd feel a very muted version of whatever you are feeling. Mm. So it's often the the music that signals a scene change or a, a change in mood or atmosphere. And that can be true for a live presentation as well. I have not done that as much as I'd like. Uh, I think that that me incorporating music could be a powerful way to, to improve my own presentations. But so that's one thing. Sounds simple, but clarity and simplicity count for a lot <laughs> in presentations. So often people get up there and either don't like get everybody on the same page. And that can be, it doesn't take much. It can just be as simple as saying, I'm going to cover three things. Here's point one, here's point two, here's point three. And then you get into the presentation. And just that, I mean, it's only going to take you 15 seconds to go over that, is just really clarifying for everybody. Then you go through the presentation. Then have one slide at the end where you just recap, okay, we covered point one, point two, point three. I hope you got X, Y, Z out of this uh, hour. Thank you so much for listening. And that I think helps clarify uh, for people what to do. Almost always, if you want the audience to get something personal out of your presentation, like if you're you're giving a presentation to teach, doing an exercise is probably more impactful than having you speak Mm. to them. So it comes down to having a good exercise and a good question to ask. But imagine the example. So I, I don't know how many people listening to this are familiar with like the business school methodology and like a very common exercise that business schools do is uh, SWOT analysis, mm-hmm. strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. Mm-hmm. And so you just whatever situation you're facing, you write down the strengths of your current you know thing, the weaknesses, the what opportunities you have, what threats might be lurking in the background. I just described that in 10 seconds there, but if everybody in the audience goes through it and writes it out, what happens is that general presentation suddenly feels personal for them.
0: Mm.
1: And uh, that can be true for pretty much any point that you're going over. If you can have an exercise that makes it feel personal, that shows them it, it almost by having them go through the exercise, they prove to themselves that what you're talking about applies to their life and uh that ends up making the presentation stick more. So mm. there are a lot of, you know, more nuanced things. I stuff like that I feel like is more powerful than a lot of the things you hear speakers and coaches talk about. People say things like make eye contact with someone new every 2 seconds mm. or, you know, move around the stage 30% of the time and be stable 70% of the time. But <laughs> and like all that stuff is fine, but if you adhere to that too strictly, what ends up happening is you look like a robot because nobody actually does that in daily life. Mm. And two, you're spending time on stuff that would make like the last 1% of difference, half a percent of difference. I mean, the thing that really makes an audience go, wow, is if the ideas are incredible and it elicits an emotional response. And so if you can figure out how to deliver better ideas and exercises are one way of delivering those ideas better and make people feel something. then I think you'll have a winning presentation.
0: On on the feeling side of things, I'll just interject this as I have heeded the advice of of previous guests. uh, In in this topic, I often hear story being brought up time and time again. And I've made it a point to uh, the last several times begin a presentation with a compelling story and and, and to elicit an emotion. And I have in just a little bit of time, I've been making that more intentional. I've seen the feedback from presentations grow exponentially positive with just that one uh, seemingly small change, it makes a huge difference. Well, uh, James, now that the the book is out uh, beyond doing interviews like this one, beyond uh, promotion, uh, what would you say is ahead for you and your team that you're excited about?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I'm really excited to see how the next few months go. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, will the book have staying power? Will it continue to, you know, like accelerate the way that it has the first couple weeks? So I'll be fascinating to see that. I am viewing the book as like the most polished first draft ever. And what I mean is that a lot of the time when authors write a book, they kind of double down on the ideas in it because it's like, oh, it's in print. Like, I can't change my mind now. (laughs) And I want to treat it much more like a scientist would where – Like this was my first experiment and I want to hear what really is working well for people. And I spent six years and a lot of time on the book. And so I think everything that's in it is really good but I want to hear where the holes are at and what could be improved and hopefully upgrade and expand it. You know, if we do an updated edition five years from now or something, I mean, I was very ambitious when I started. I I said that I wanted to write the definitive book on habits and uh, my hope is that that's happened. But the only way that it's going to continue to be that is if I update it and continue working on it. So, so that's definitely part of the future. And then the final thing is, uh, kind of expanding the scope of this. So, like, we have a habit journal that is coming out in January oh. uh, that is an actual... So, it's a it's a physical dot grid journal, but it also has habit trackers in it. Uh, it's got a section at the beginning that makes it as easy as possible to build, like, a daily journaling habit. So, it's just one... You journal one sentence per day. And uh, then you can look back at the end of each month and see, you know, your 31 sentences in that month or at the end of the year and see all 12 months there. But anyway, the point is the journal is specifically designed to be in incredibly useful for anybody that uses a journal regularly like Mm. bullet journaling or just some kind of notebook while also taking advantage of some of the key like habit formation insights for tracking your habits and building new habits and so on. Mm. So we've got that, we have a course, and then uh, who knows what I'll write next. At some point I'm sure I'll toy toy with some more book ideas.
0: (laughs) Well, I facilitate a members-only uh, online book club of read-to-lead listeners called Read to Lead University, and I'm excited to to announce that Atomic Habits is going to be our December uh, selection, uh, and, and I've got a lot of people in the group really looking forward to diving into this uh, more deeply. So thank you for, for writing it, and I'm really looking forward to that, uh, to that habit journal you talked about as well. The book, again, is called Atomic Habits, an Easy and Proven Way to Build Good Habits and Break Bad Ones, Tiny Changes, Remarkable results. James, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us about it today. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, I'm glad that you're enjoying the book. I enjoyed James'
0: book so much, I purchased a copy for every member of my mastermind group. To find out more about James, his brand new book, the apps he referenced, and also the other books that he recommended. You can find links to all that and more at the show notes page I've created just for this episode, and that's at podcast.com slash 242 for episode 242. Remember our friendly sponsors making this episode possible and both providing you with free trials. There's Adagio, my new favorite music streaming app, especially designed for lovers of classical music. Find up more at read to lead slash classical and try it free for 14 days and also fresh books cloud accounting software with a free 30-day trial freshbooks.com slash read to lead for comments and questions about the show you can send those to me directly Jeff at read to lead well that does it for this week I look forward to seeing you next time until then remember leaders read and readers lead I'm gonna go.